you're growing up, you're a pretty normal kid, you're doing stupid things. <laughs> Fighting with your siblings, I had nine, I'm an expert. If you want to know how to fight with siblings, I'm your man, I can tell you how. <laughs> you're arguing, you know, disagreeing with your parents, arguing, blasting at your friends, arguing. You're a normal kid. But your brother, the golden child, your parents' dream, their eldest son, it's not like he ever disagrees with them. It's more like they never disagree with him. He never argues with you or any of your other siblings. It's like he's this whole separate entity. He's weird. And as you're growing up, this thought keeps coming to you. It's really just a veneer of perfection covering up the real human underneath. Someday he'll crack and lose it, just like everybody else. Although he never seemed to. And then he grew up, and when Dad died, took over the family business. Life got pretty normal then. Everybody kind of forgot he was different. Then one day, he suddenly just up and left. No warning, nothing. He just left became a rabbi. Gathered up a ragtag bunch of disciples, fishermen, and a tax collector. And then all the people started whispering around town. Oh, you knew what they were saying. His brother has a Messiah complex. And you find it hard to disagree. That little tickle in your head says, he has finally cracked. All the years of acting perfect finally caught up with him and now he's gone insane. He actually believes he is perfect. True, you were always irritated at him, but he's your brother and you do love him. But somebody's going to kill him. Messiahs always end up getting killed. What do you do? Hey, you're an action guy. So you talk it over with your other brothers. You all go to your mom. You get her to agree to go and talk with him. Time to do an intervention. Maybe you can drag him home and keep him safe. You might have to care for a crazy man the rest of your life, but at least your mom won't have to see her favorite son die. It takes some time to figure out where he is, but when you get there, you're shocked. He's in a huge house, but the crowd is so thick you can't even get in close. You can hear him through an open window, so you tell the guy in front of you who you are and what you want. He stares at you for a second like, wow, he has a brother? <laughs> but then he taps the shoulder of the guy in front of him. They talk. You get stared at again. Who are all these people? And why are they so intent to hear your crazy brother? Another exchange, another look back, and the process repeats. You can follow each exchange as the word moves up towards him. And as word spreads, some people move out of the way so that you, your brothers, and your mom can at least see him through the window. A man signals to him. You can't hear what he's told. But you see your brother look up, and then he shouts out, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? He waves his hand at his disciples sitting around him and continues, Here are my mother and my brothers. We stabbed to the heart, rejected for a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. He's rejecting his own family. 
I mean, you can feel your face flush in anger. Then you look towards your mother and see her turn pale. He's replacing his own mother with these people. He really has lost his mind. But it gets even worse. He keeps speaking. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Not only has he just dumped you and his own mother for these people, now he claims to be God's son. Even dad is not enough anymore for this madman. Dad, our good, wonderful dad, he dumps him as well. There's nothing you can do here. So you head home. A while later, you and some of your other brothers come across him teaching those disciples he loves. And this thought pops into your head. If you're really the Messiah, why are you hiding out here in the backwoods? There's another big feast coming up in Judea, Jerusalem. So you blurt out, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Yeah, okay, you lost it there. But then he does that eerie thing he always does. He speaks with that unsettling calmness that always seems to surround him. My time has not yet come. Oh, but he doesn't stop there. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Man, the thoughts that flood your brain. Again, like you're better than the rest of us. What are you saying, that we are like the world? Hate? You're fighting back hatred for this man. This man that is your brother. You storm off for home. But after you get there, you remember you love him. And you worry about him. And finally, the day comes when your worst fears are realized. You rush to Jerusalem, but... You're too late. By the time you find your mother, he's already dead and buried. So you sit with the fisherman and the tax collector and your mom and you all mourn together. There's really nothing else to do. You decide you better take your mom home. But then the strangest thing happens. He appears to you. (laughs) He is alive. He talks to you and teaches you and you realize... That all you've said is foolishness, whispers from below, the wisdom of this world. And you understand all that he ever taught was wisdom, wisdom from above. And you believe. As the years go by, everybody that talks to you wants to know, what was it like growing up with Jesus? (laughs) What did you learn with him when you were young? Finally, you realize you've got to write this down. Nobody's written anything about Jesus yet. So you write a letter. A letter to all those who come to believe as you do now. What to say? How to start? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the human brother of Jesus wrote what was probably the first work of the New Testament. Maybe Paul wrote his book to the Galatian churches first, but even if he had, copies wouldn't have yet made it back to Jerusalem. you got to figure that every person 
who talked to James probably made the same general statements. You know, wow, you had the same mother as Jesus. The same man that raised you raised Jesus. So I'm thinking it was natural for people to think that James had some sort of advantage over them as far as access to Jesus goes. That maybe he was in some sense born on a level closer to Jesus than everybody else. But James identifies himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Bracketing Jesus' name with two titles. The first, identifying Jesus as God. And the second is the chosen one of God. And then James goes on to talk about what he did gain from knowing Jesus. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without a reproach, and it will be given him. You probably noticed that he says, any of you. He's letting everybody know that anyone who places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can ask for the same wisdom to which he has access. Anyone. Wisdom. Okay, now we get to the comparison part. You have siblings, then you've compared. <laughs> you see, James must have had many conversations with Jesus while he was growing up. Nicodemus and the woman at the well had conversations with Jesus that changed them to the core of their being after just one encounter. How is it that James had many and yet missed who Jesus is? How did he do that? Because he didn't listen to the wisdom that is from above. Instead, he heard the foolishness that is from down here. The whispers of Satan. James spends a lot of time talking about talk. That's not too surprising in that he appears to have talked way too much <laughs> and way too foolishly. And his concern for proper speech may arise from his own difficulties. It appears he himself was uh, fiery-tongued. James ties this use of the tongue with his main theme, true and false wisdom, in the heart of his letter. It's, it's so much better to read it all as one piece, so we'll come back to it afterwards and look at some parts of it, but we're going to read it all together here. James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For by the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring bring forth, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? James was himself a teacher of the good news. But he doesn't use the formal word for teacher here. Instead, he uses a very informal Greek word, the one for people who simply spoke up in church. You see, when a Jewish visitor would come to a synagogue in another city, he would be asked to speak. Usually so he could say something like, Hi, I'm Saul, and I bring you greetings from the synagogue of whatever city he was from. Basically was the idea. The apostles, Paul especially, took advantage of this invitation to speak about Jesus. <laughs> so they were expecting a greeting and instead they got to learn all about Jesus. And in the church, many people begin to take basically every chance they had to speak in front of everybody. I guess they were glory hogs, I don't know. And James said, don't be so free doing that. God judges those who speak in front of the whole church more strictly. From here, he can lead into the main points of this section. The tongue is powerful. The tongue can be poisonous. It is a fire, a fire that comes from hell. Why did James make such a great fool of himself during Jesus' ministry? Because he let the whispers of Satan drive him to use his tongue to light an evil fire. I mean, did he even consider what Jesus felt when his own brothers rejected him? Thought him a lunatic. The tongue is polluted and polluting. Praise and cursing coming from the same mouth? How is it that we speak both good and evil? How is it that fresh and bitter water flow from this one spring? How is it that we bear both good and evil fruit? James included much more in his letter. And like most writing Jews of that period, the, the letter was a, a circle of thoughts that center on the main point. In James' case, wisdom versus foolishness. Contrasting the still small voice of God with the evil whispers of Satan. So James returns to the same thoughts in a rhythm throughout his letter. And we quickly find that our speech is a major problem in the balance of wisdom and foolishness. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Hearing is a good thing. Listen to people. <laughs> but did you catch that speaking is related to anger? When you find yourself getting angry, maybe you might want to uh, shut up. <laughs> Dr. Jack Williamson, a friend of mine, he's a psychologist, he says it this way, the brain is a pharmacy. Remember that old thing that went around for a while? You got to vent. If you, if you try to keep all that inside you, you'll just blow up later, so vent. Can I just tell you, that's a whisper from Satan. <laughs> that doesn't work. Venting does not lessen anger. It actually creates chemicals in your brain, or we should say your brain is creating chemicals, since it is a pharmacy, that actually increase the animosity. 
the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, what does? In other words, how do you control your speech and your anger? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't just learn it, do it. Obviously, to do it, you have to learn it. So, learn the word so you can do it. And uh, how do you do it? (laughs) James gives his readers an example. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained in the world. In brief, do good, be good. This is what we want to be like if we belong to Christ. But we must not miss this point. That instruction is preceded by this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That comes first. You cannot do pure religion until you do bridle your tongue. If you can't control your tongue, you are not ready to serve God in the world. James gives us another way of determining the origin of wisdom. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, chasing the money. (laughs) Can you hear Satan whispering in that? And of course, that's just the illustration. It's a pretty big deal in their culture. The point in any culture is to be impartial as to spiritual things, especially when using your tongue. James comes back to that thought with an illustration of insincere faith. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? The issue was much more important to them than we can understand. In that culture, a person without familial support usually had no place to live, uh, no way to get clothing, no chance of getting a meal. Such a brother or sister would be in danger of death, literally. James' very use of brother or sister says a world of things. Uh, You see, many who became Christians back then were rejected by their families. So when they came in clothed in rags and on the verge of malnutrition, they had nowhere else to go. And James says, you be their family. You get them back on their feet. And some of them were saying, don't worry, God will provide. And now, please uh, get out. (laughs) That's really what they were saying. If a person, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, has nowhere to go, nowhere to be nourished, we must fulfill their needs. Now, unfortunately, charlatans use this, attempt to use this instruction to leech off the church. And frankly, it's a sin to give them what should be reserved for the family of God and the helpless. But it is, nevertheless, true. We must help those who believe who have nowhere else to go. And don't miss this. To talk Christian without a relationship with Jesus is as worthless as this. This is the point. And you must have the relationship 
demonstrated by the good works. Well, after illustrating the difference between wise and the foolish use of the tongue in the center section we read earlier, James focuses on another critical issue for the church. This might make you a little uncomfortable, so take a moment to breathe deeply. Okay, everybody ready? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Murder? Okay, he's using hyperbole, great exaggeration to make a point. But his point is, what they were doing looks to the eyes of God quite similar to murder. When quarreling and fighting happens in the church, God, James says, cries murder. So why fight? To get what we want. Do we want to be important? Do we want glory? We don't get what we want, so we fight and we quarrel with our brothers and sisters. Remember, he's writing to the church. <laughs> James says that some forget to ask God for what they want. Not that he'd give it to him, because you'll just spend it on your own passions. Reminds me of that movie. You really want that BB gun? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> I think that's what he's saying. Passion. Grasping for passion has a name, hedonism, making pleasure mankind's greatest aim. But pleasure is a gift from God, a gift we are given because we do the right things. Pleasure is supposed to be the result of right living. God made it possible to pursue pleasure directly. But whenever one does, they discover a frustrating reality. Detached from the good works that should precede it, pleasure loses its appeal. What was good enough before isn't enough now. And thus they discover the hedonistic dilemma. There must always be more stimulation to achieve the same feeling of pleasure. And they wind ever downward in a spiral that can only lead to a fiery crash. Quarrels and fights in church, James says, are caused by this self-focused sin. How horrible. How can we live free of this evil? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. <laughs> That's it. Have we forgotten that he is God and we are not? He deserves glory. We really do not. But we can trust that he will exalt those, give glory to those, who humble themselves before him. James points out that in all our lives we need to be remembering that God owns it all. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So don't be self-assertive, self-confident. The time we have is not our own. The money we have is not our own. The life we have is not our own. There's nothing wrong with doing business and making a profit. That's not what they were doing wrong. 
The wrong is in forgetting God's will. The wrong is in living for ourselves instead of for God. The point is to be God-assertive, to be God-confident. James returns to the problem of sins in the workplace with something more blatantly evil. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Ouch! And he's writing this to Christians. <laughs> Let's just say it briefly and quickly. There is no place for cheating in the church. And remember, you are the church. Everything in your life needs to be focused on God. People ought to see something in your life that causes them to ask why you live like you do instead of seeing you cheat people just like they do. And what about the people who are cheated? Does James have something to say to them? Well, yes. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble. (laughs) He cheated me out of my money, the money that I earned fairly. I've had that happen to me, Christians who took money that belonged to me twice in my life, significant amounts of money that were owed to me was taken by men who called themselves Christians, and I think they were. It was really really hard. Can I just say really hard just to give it all over to the judge of the universe? That was hard. Uh, Somehow he gave me grace to do it and both times I'm pleased to say. And both times right afterwards a business opportunity came about that made up for those losses easily. Way more in both cases. Way more. God's got your back. That's what he's saying. Let God be God. You be the brother who sister who cares anyway and doesn't grumble. Don't, don't wish on them what God might do to them. <laughs> Let's not forget that he prefers mercy, which, after all, we all need. James says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Above all things? Above all? I swear on my mother's grave that what I tell you is the truth. Ever heard that? Well, if you really are faithful to God, why would you have to add an oath to your promises? Isn't God good enough? Is God not enough? That's what he's saying. Above all, make God enough in your life. We're back to that familiar point. Live a life that people know is different. Say what you mean and then live it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Here's a good use for the tongue. If things are tough, pray to God. If things are good, praise God. Seems like we're back to that God is everything theme, right? That's doing that one again. 
But why wouldn't a Christian do this? Why, why does James even have to say it? Unfortunately, because they are weak spiritually. That's James' point in the very next sentence. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The Greek word he used for sick can also mean to be weak. In fact, it's the main use for that word in the New Testament, in the Gospels and Acts particularly. So sick could be physical illness. It can mean that or weariness, just plain worn out or immorality, spiritual weakness. And also, the word for anoint is not the special word meaning a ceremonial anointing with oil. They had that word. He did not use that. It's just the common word for putting oil on someone, for gently rubbing oil in. Like the woman who had much forgiven that uh, did with Jesus, like Luke recorded. In other words, James isn't talking about a religious ceremony. He's talking about encouragement. That's what he means when he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is what he's talking about. Your prayers have great power to heal the hurt of sin, to help people gain spiritual strength. And this is all about healing from sin. And I'm, yes, they tied the physical and the spiritual together much more tightly than we do. But James is interested in the wisdom from above. That's his main point. That wisdom can overwhelm the whispers of Satan. One makes us weak, the other strong. He goes on to say, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Christians who are sinners, the wandering ones are straying Christians. Do you care enough to confront them, to save them from committing the sins they might commit without your intervention? Sins that might even end in their death. Sins that certainly would cause them pain. Remember when James jabbed at Jesus? Go on, go down to Jerusalem and stretch your stuff. If you really, who are you, who you say you are? Go do it. Jesus cared enough to verbally slap him pretty hard. <laughs> Jesus did care that much. He cared so much that he came into the world <laughs> knowing his message would uh, conflict with the lives of the very sinners he came to save. Sinners like his own brother, James. <laughs> sinners like us. The hope today is that you will be inspired to read James' entire letter. It won't take you 15 minutes. It's not that long. Because there is a truth that would be frightening did we not know God and his word. Every moment of every day, Satan and his minions are whispering into people's ears, even the ears of Christians. Every moment of every day. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You do not have to be led astray by the evil one. You can learn the wisdom from above. So when you are tempted, you do not fail. Before we leave, James, there's one more thought we should consider. It would be nice to be able to blame Satan for everything. You remember Flip Wilson? Does anybody remember Flip Wilson? <laughs> the devil made me do it. <laughs> yeah. That would be nice to be able to say, but earlier in his letter, James says this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know how why carrots are held on sticks in front of donkeys? <laughs> you know, to get them to move, you hold a carrot. I don't know if that actually works, but they always show you that. You know why you do that? Because donkeys like carrots. <laughs> no point in putting something they don't like out there. <laughs> Satan dangles our own desires in front of us to try to get us to go the wrong way. But if we trust God, the devil's whispers even if they entice us with our own favorite sin, will not lead us astray. None of us has gotten it as far wrong as James did. <laughs> wow, did he miss. But none of us has gotten it as right as he did once he believed either. <laughs> Still, we can control our tongues. We can live true religion. We can be spiritually impartial. We can care for our true brothers and sisters. We can humble ourselves before God. And then we will, we will remember it all belongs to God. We will live all our lives honorably before Him. And even when we're cheated, we will not grumble. We'll be able to leave it up to God. And we will live our lives for God simply as we say we will. In both the good and the bad, trusting Him. Caring for one another, even if it is difficult. Pulling back those who stray. Because the whispers of Satan no longer appeal to those who know the wisdom of heaven. Let's pray.